Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor And do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days, The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. (coughs) Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and heard the trumpet, and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance, while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. I think you'll find it a great help if you can open your Bibles again at that reading from Exodus chapter 20. It's on page 77 in the Pew Bibles. And 
you may well discover in, a, in the bundle you received on the way in a, a, a handout which shows you roughly where we, we'll be going in the next uh, few minutes. You might find it helpful to have that handout to hand. I do apologise, my, my, my voice is quite croaky this morning, um, so there may be a few squeaks along the way. But uh, what is wonderful is that God's word is never unclear, it, it never is rusty, always helpful for us to hear. So let's pray now for his help as we turn to it. Father, we do thank you very much for these remarkable words given to your people as they gathered around the mountain. We thank you for what they show about who you are as our rescuing God and also what it means to be your people, living a life of worship. And please help us to be those who do indeed love you and worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we have before us one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Uh, They are words that um, I think most people in this country would have heard of. Uh, Even those who aren't very familiar with the Bible would have at least heard of uh, this list, the Ten Commandments. Um, Around church buildings across this country, often there will be a list of these commands somewhere at the front or on the side. And indeed here at Fullwood, there is a list on the way in on your right, high up there, uh, the Ten Commandments. Very famous words, very well-known words, and yet I think possibly one of the most misunderstood chapters in all of the Bible. When I find myself speaking to people who aren't really part of church things, who want to show me that they are good people, they they might say things like, I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't murder. Look, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. But is that the function of these Ten Commandments? Is that why they're here, to prove whether we are good or not? It is quite a thing, isn't it, as we read through this list or as we walk in the back of the church and see that list on the wall and we look at what God has spoken by his word and we look at our own lives. It is quite a thing, isn't it? I wonder how we compare. There'll be some here this morning who maybe walk in and we think, well, I've had a pretty good week. We might feel relatively confident. There'll be others who look at the list and go, I've completely blown it this week. I'm nowhere. Completely guilty. So what are we to do with this most famous and yet I think misunderstood uh, list of commands? What are they all about? Well, I think uh, commands without context leaves you in a dangerous place. And before I dive into this famous passage, I think understanding the, the context in and around the story here in Exodus is crucial for us to understand what this list is doing here. And we saw last week that the first half of Exodus shows us how God saves a people for himself out of slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. But the second half shows us why God has saved us. And we saw last week that that, that we are saved for worship. If you have a Bible, do flick back to um, Exodus chapter 3 just for a moment. It's on page 60 of the Pew Bibles. And Exodus chapter 3 describes for us that moment when Moses arrived at the mountain the first time, uh, when he saw a bush that was burning and yet not consumed, and he heard God's voice coming from the bush. And God makes a most remarkable promise to Moses, verse 12 of chapter 3. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Do you see the the goal of the rescue mission? It is to arrive at the mountain and there at the mountain to worship God. 
the mountain is to be a place of worship. And again and again through Exodus, as Moses clashes with Pharaoh, the reason why Moses is so urgent about the need to leave Egypt is so that God's people can go and worship God. That's the whole point of the rescue mission, to be a worshipping people. And so here in Exodus 20, as we see the people gathered around the mountain, we should expect to read next a description of worship. That's the whole point of the mountain. So what does worship look like? And we'll see this morning in Exodus 20 that the call here is not to, as one preacher put it, pick up a guitar, but rather a call to pick up the phone and ring your parents. We are saved for worship. But we also need to see by way of context that we are not saved by worship. This is one of the great differences between Christianity and every religion in the world. Religion teaches us that we worship our way in order to be saved. I hear it so often when I um, visit people, perhaps around the parish, perhaps um, uh, people who are thinking about having their children baptized and they're thinking through what it means to be a Christian and I ask them what they think a Christian is and they say, well, I've tried to be a good person. I must be a Christian, therefore. When I ask them what they will say to God when on the final day they appear before him and he asks them why they should be allowed into his presence, the answer again is, I've done the best I can to be a good person. And do you see the, the assumption behind that answer is that if we get things lined up correctly and we worship properly, we can be good enough to worship our way into God's presence. But the people in Exodus did not worship their way out of slavery in Egypt to the mountain of God where he dwells. And if anything, they, they grumbled their way out of Egypt to the mountain. And we read in Exodus 20 verse 1, something so important. So back in Exodus chapter 20, uh, flick forward to page 77 again in the Pew Bibles. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, the rescue has already happened. The people are not standing there at the mountain because they worship their way out of slavery, but rather because an awesome, wonderful, promise-keeping, loving God stepped into history and rescued his people out of slavery to this place. And we saw last year that that picture of rescue is a picture which points us forward to Christ and how he reaches down and rescues us from our slavery to sin. And he forgives us and redeems us and makes us part of his people. And it's a wonderful story. We need to be reminded that we are not saved by worship, but rather by the great work of Christ on the cross as he died for us. And I think even as Christians, we struggle to believe this. And how often do we gauge our closeness to God or our worthiness to be loved by God based on the things we've done this week? I struggle with this. Have we fought lustful thoughts in our minds? Have we held our tongue and not spoken words of anger? Have we picked up the phone and made the, the call we should have done to our parents? If we've done these things, then often we do feel closer to God. We feel more lovable in God's presence. But the message of Exodus, and indeed the Bible, is that the only way we can get access to God is not by our efforts, but by the death of Jesus, who brings us freedom and forgiveness. 
And so as we pick up the story here in Exodus 20, we must remember that we are saved for worship, but we are not saved by worship. And that's the context here. And as we dive into the, the chapter, I think the big question then becomes, what does this worship look like? As we gather around the mountain and hear God speak to us, what does he say to us? Well, I think these 10 commandments show us what a worshiping life looks like. I think in many ways they... They show us the kinds of things God loves and the kind of things that God hates. If we want to be a people who worship God properly, we need to know uh, what God wants from us, the things he delights in, the things he doesn't like. I remember when I was first getting to know my wife, Lorna, uh, one week she got the flu and had to take the week off work and she was in bed. And in a rare moment of thoughtfulness, I thought I would pop around with a few things to cheer her up. And uh, I was trying to think, what kind of things would Lorna like that would cheer her up? And I thought about myself and what I would like. And at that point in time, I was particularly enjoying a box set of the series 24. And I thought, well, that will cheer Lorna up. She'll love it. So um, I popped around with a box set and a few other things. And I left it with her. Uh, Lorna hates 24. Um, she watched the first episode and she was so upset by the, uh, the, 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 the kind of drama of what she saw. She couldn't sleep all that night. She was so worked up and I think it put her back a couple of days in terms of getting better from the flu. But you see, it, I guess in, in a sense I was just getting to know her. It, it doesn't matter too much if I make a mistake early on. But of course, um, 10 years later, if I still keep buying her box sets of the 24 series for her birthday and Christmas and when she's not well, you start to wonder, Pete, how well do you know Lorna? Do you understand what she likes and doesn't like? And of course, if you get it wrong, it does put strain on the relationship. Well, take hot drinks. I guess many of us here have experienced uh, starting a new job, you're in a new office, you're trying to find your feet with a new bunch of people and one of the little ways in which you stand out or fit in is whether they know what drink you like and when 11 o'clock comes and the, the trolley comes around they, they, they make you a drink and you know tea or coffee black or white sugar no, no sugar um the first few weeks is fine they, they don't know you um they have to guess but but after a couple of years if they still don't know that you take coffee black you start to wonder they don't really know me they don't know my likes and dislikes and that's a big barrier to relationship isn't it and I think here at the mountain, as God gathers his people to worship, he is showing them the kind of God he is, the kind of things he loves and doesn't love. And the whole point is to facilitate relationship. He wants his people to draw close to him and to live a life that pleases him. But it's not just that, of course. As we understand what God wants from us, he's asking us to live a good life, a life that is good for us. It's not like God's requests are over here and what's good for us is over here. No, that the one and the same thing, to live God's way with the things God delights in is a good life. It is good for his people. And so I think these 10 commandments show us the kind of things that God loves and delights in. I think the first four commandments show us how God wants us to relate to him. That's our first point, a right relationship with God. The God of the universe loves it when People worship him above anything else. Look at verse three. You shall have no gods before me. And of course, this makes perfect sense. Back in Israel's day, there were lots of gods. Think of Egypt. There was 
Um, Ammon, the god of air and wind. There is Ra, the sun god. There is Isis, the god of crops, and many, many more. But none of these gods of Egypt were able to stand up to the almighty, powerful God of the Bible, for the God of the Bible had stepped in and rescued his people out of Egypt and defeated these gods. Who else can carry his people on eagle's wings to himself in this great act of rescue? And so I guess very simply, why would you want to serve any other God? I think at our best as Christians, we see this clearly. We remember the even greater rescue that Christ brings us, how he's freed us from sin and forgiven us and made us a new people. And we realize that there is nothing else in the world around us that can do that for us. Our, our jobs, our relationships, our careers, our bank accounts, our holidays, they, they can't rescue us like that. Only God can. And in our best moments, we, we see that. And so we do worship God before all things. But so often our best moments are rare and our vision is clouded and we get sucked into living for material things, for a good reputation, exam results, career, the next holiday. These things aren't wrong in themselves, but when we turn to them for our ultimate security and life, well, they will never be able to bear that weight. And I do wonder as Christians this morning, it's worth asking uh, over the, the last week or so, uh, what, what gods have we been worshiping in our lives? Uh, there's lots of things we could say on this, but uh, two thoughts for us this morning. One is, in the last week, if we've had a spare few moments where have our thoughts rushed to? As we daydream, what do we kind of think about and look forward to? At times this week, I've been thinking about my next holiday, looking forward to sort of peace and, and quietness. I wonder about you. Again, it's not wrong in that moment, but if we find our thoughts are always going to the, to the one thing and never going to the Lord for our rest and salvation, it's dangerous. Or what is the one thing that if we lost it in this world, we would be not just grieving, but we would be completely devastated. Our world would absolutely fall apart. What is that one thing? Exodus would urge us to make that one thing the Lord, a God above all other gods. Next, verse four, he says, you shall not make for yourself any, an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. This might be a, a repeat of command one, not to have any other gods before the God of the Bible, but I think probably more likely it's a, it's a command not to worship the God of the Bible by worshiping images or created things. No, God wants us to worship him not that way. Uh, and this is crucial because around the mountain, we've seen that at no point do the people of God see an image of God. They don't see a picture of him or they don't catch sight of him visibly, but they hear his voice speaking to them. I think it's very important. God wants his people to relate to him primarily by hearing his voice. And I think it's um, significant that the reformers back in the 1500s were very concerned about um, churches that were covered in icons and, and pictures and shapes because they felt it was right that God's people come back to God's word in order to have our, our view of God shaped and formed. And it's right that here around this building is not full of pictures and icons and colors, but rather God's word is central to our relationship to him. Command three is not just about swearing. It's also about not taking 
Um, not slandering God's name. Not saying things about him that aren't true. And if you want to see what that looks like in practice, just glance back to Exodus 15 to 17. And you see a people who grumbled their way out of slavery, uh, questioning God's goodness and kindness and faithfulness. Uh, don't be like that, says God. And then comes command four. Look at verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. In other words, mark out the Sabbath day as being special compared to the other six days. And the basis for the command is given in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This takes us back to the beginning of the Bible, back to Genesis 1 and 2, where we read about God creating humanity. And we see that in six days, God worked to create the world. But on the seventh day, he stopped from his labors. He was finished. And the seventh day wasn't about God stepping back and just relaxing and drifting through life. But rather, it was a pause in order for relationship. We find God in Genesis 2 relating to humanity, um, giving them instructions And we find equally that humanity relates to God. Um, It's wonderful in Genesis 2, verse 15, we read that God put man into the garden in order to work the garden. And that word for work is the same same word used throughout Exodus to describe how God's people are to worship him and serve him. And uh, the longing in in Genesis 2 is, is a picture of rest, of God and humanity in relationship as humanity work and serve the Lord in his presence, delighting in him. That is the picture of the seventh day rest in Genesis. And I think here at the mountain in Exodus 20, we find that same longing being worked out. God wants a people for himself who come and rest in his presence, who worship him by obeying him and delight in knowing him. And as we flick forward to the end of the Bible, we find that right at the end, we find promised an eternal rest an eternal Sabbath when God's people are in his presence, um, delighting in him, serving him, worshiping him for eternity. And so this idea of, of Sabbath rest um, picks up this great longing of God's people being in his presence, resting and enjoying him. I think it's important that we're not told what kind of work they shouldn't do, verse 10. Um, the details aren't really worked out for us here. And I'm very uh, cautious today to kind of start talking about the kinds of work we should and shouldn't do in the Sabbath or how this applies to Christians at that level. But I do want to commend to you the great longing of the Bible to be in a relationship with God, resting, um, delighting in fellowship with him, gathered with his people around his word and looking forward to the day when we do that for eternity. And I think it's good and right for us as Christians to make sure we have time in our weeks that we're not so busy rushing around working that we can't stop and enjoy that rest, even now. And I think in practice, it means that we should prioritize this day, the seventh day, the Sunday. It seems to be the best time for God's people to gather around his word as a people and enjoy his promises and our relationship with him. Um, And I get nervous when Christians... um, play loose and fast with that relationship when they push it to one side and they promote hobbies or holidays or or work or just being away and they don't treasure and long for those moments when God's people gather around his word uh, in his presence and worshipping him 
It's a picture of eternity. And I hope it, it excites us now in the present. This is what worship looks like. Living in a right relationship with God. And as I said, this is not just about what God wants from us or what God likes, but this is the good life. This is good for us to live this way. But second, now what does worship look like? It looks like a right relationship with God's people. The pace uh, spicks up, uh, speeds up here as we um, go through the second half of the list, and I want to speed up as well as we uh, head towards a close. All these commands are, are picked up in the New Testament. Uh, command five, honor your parents, is quoted in Ephesians five, uh, Ephesians six. Sorry, um, the command about murder and uh, adultery, both picked up by Jesus in Matthew five. And if anything, he he raises the bar. He says it's not just murder, but it's also hatred. It's not just adultery, but it's it's lust in our in our minds, stealing, lying, coveting. Again, all picked up again and reinforced in the New Testament as a way that God's people are to live as they worship God. And note how relational these commands are. God doesn't rescue his people so that they can live on their own privately. No, these are words of a relationship with with other people. Uh, The picture here is of God's people gathered together as a community around the mountain working out how they relate to one another in practice. And it won't be easy. Uh, There'll be uh, the need not to murder, not to lie, not to steal, not to covet, all these things as this new community lives together. And I think as Christians, we need to remember that we are saved, not just individually, but we are saved to be part of a people, the church. And we are saved into a community where we need to relate with one another and work these things out. And I love the way that Jesus summarizes Uh, the whole law in Mark 12 when he says what is the summary of the law he says very positively love God and love your neighbor and that I think is the heart the the, the direction of travel that we find here in Exodus 20 loving God loving our neighbor and so here's what worship looks like Uh, at no point have we mentioned the organ or a guitar Although, as we sing, that can be part of our worship, but worship is so much more than that. It is our our whole lives. And I think this is tremendously exciting. We can worship God in the smallest things, in the most mundane details. So this coming week, every time that we are tempted to lose our anger and get angry at someone, but we hold our tongue, that is an act of worship. Every time we're tempted to indulge in some lust or some covetousness and we say, no, I won't do that. That is an act of worship. The Lord delights in these things. And I think it's it's remarkable that the God of the Bible, this awesome, scary, amazing God, notices those little details of each person and he cares. And he's pleased and thrilled as we worship him with the whole of our lives. But just as we finish, there is one final puzzle for us to think through. It's It's there in Exodus 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. I think in other words, the question as we close is, how does it feel to worship this kind of holy, awesome God? Should we do so 
as fearful people or as people who are confident? What does it look like and feel like? And it's kind of confusing. Moses says, on one hand, don't be afraid. The people gathered at the mountain were remarkably afraid at this point. They were trembling. They were scared. They didn't want to come near the mountain. And when Moses says to him, don't be afraid, he's saying, look, yes, this God is holy and awesome, but he wants you to come in. He wants to gather you. Please don't run away. I think of last week when my wife Lorna was um, using a staple gun to do some fabric, uh, fixing a cushion on a chair. Um, Staple guns make a bit of noise when you punch them down. Um, She did quite a few punches. Um, About an hour later, she was looking around the house and thought, oh, where's the dog gone? I haven't seen the dog for a while. And she couldn't find the dog anywhere downstairs. And then upstairs, she found our dog in the corner of a room, quivering with fear. An hour later, petrified of this staple gun noise. You see, the dog's instinct was to run away, hide, get away as far as possible from the source of fear. And Moses says to the people of God, don't be like that, don't fear. Don't run away and tremble from this awesome God. Come close, that's his goal for you. And of course, as Christians, we have an even greater reason not to fear this holy, awesome God, for we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We have been completely and finally and eternally cleansed. And so when Moses says, don't fear, don't be afraid, as Christians, we say, we know why. We come close through Jesus and we need not be afraid. And so on one hand, worship God without any fear, We've been rescued. Even if we go out today, and and I know I will fail to keep these 10 commandments, yet there is no fear as we trust in Jesus. And yet Moses does also say, do be afraid. The fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. I think Moses isn't talking here about the kind of fear which makes you run away from God and hide from God, but rather a fear which makes you want to come closer to God and take him seriously, to pay attention to him, not to, to mess around with him, and, and to want to do what he asks of us. There is a, a healthy kind of fear for Christians that I think Moses is talking about. I'm trying to think through how we sort of understand this today. The best I've got is a picture of when I was a child and I knew that at times I, I crossed the line and didn't behave as my parents wanted me to behave. And my dad would come home from work and he would hear about it. And uh, he would take me into his arms and sit me down on his lap and say, Pete, I love you very much. You need to know that. I'm for you. I'm with you. I love you. But we have to talk about what you've just done. And I used to hate those moments, not because I I feared my father's love. I knew he loved me. I was convinced of that. But it was more that I was was fearful of realizing I'd let him down, that I hadn't lived up to his standards, that there had been this disappointment, if you like, if that's the right word. And the next time I was tempted to kind of go against what he wanted from me, I would picture that moment when I had to come back to him. And that moment would help me not to want to break his request again in the future. It's not a perfect illustration, but, but here in Exodus 20, there's something going on here where, where God wants his people um, to come close to him and take him seriously, not out of a fear that he will consume them, but rather a fear of taking him seriously and, and caring about the things he cares about. And in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, we find the same logic at work. The writer says, come, 
come close to God and yet serve him with reverence and awe. There's a, a healthy kind of fear as we worship God. Don't mess around with him. Don't play loose and fast with him whilst at the same time trusting that we are completely forgiven in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have saved us to be worshippers, people who live our lives for you. And we thank you for the tremendous privilege it is to be able to be worshippers of you without fear, able to come close, confident that no matter what we do, we are loved and accepted through the Lord Jesus. But Father, please also help us to have a, a genuine longing to live for you, to really care about putting you first, to take it seriously how we live, uh, to want to worship you, and to have a, a healthy respect for you and for your ways. And we pray this, that we would indeed be worshippers that please you and delight you. In Jesus' name, amen.